You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good, uh, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, ODI. Welcome to the meeting on African growth uh, in the new global context. Um, and we're going to discuss this topic um, on the basis of a report um, that the uh, OECD and African Union have um, recently uh, published, which is the Africa's Development Dynamics, Growth, Jobs and Inequalities. And um, you can follow uh, this meeting uh, online. Uh, online viewers, you can uh, tweet about it. Um, and um, you can also, uh, the, the video will be recorded and you can uh, uh, watch it online afterwards. Um, and um, so I think the topic is uh, really important for us uh, working uh, here uh, at ODI. Uh, we are passionate about uh, improving um, the quality of growth. Um, thinking about job-rich growth is really important for us. Uh, and unfortunately, what we have seen in a lot of African countries that there was some growth, but perhaps um, not the high quality growth that we were really looking for, the really the transformative type of growth that is job rich, it creates jobs. Um, and uh, just one statistic in this, um, uh, in this report, if you read it, is that um, uh, yes, there's a lot of poverty uh, uh, in, in African countries, but also there are also a lot in, unequal. And that six of the um, of the ten most unequal countries are actually in the southern African uh, region, and so there, uh, there's a lot of poverty. There's also a lot of inequality, and so we haven't really seen the broad-based growth that we're looking for, and we want to have a discussion on that. At the same time, there are also lots of megatrends affecting um, Africa and uh, other regions as well. But but we're looking here more at, uh, at, uh, at African African countries. Um, so think about climate change, of course, is, uh, is, is one area. Uh, demography, uh, so demographic challenges are also um, really uh, fundamental, uh, fundamentally shaping uh, the prospects of African countries. So um, there are various statistics, but uh, about uh, Africa needs to create about an additional 12 million jobs um, each year um, to, uh, to keep up with demographic challenges, for example. Um, and um, there are other megatrends like technology, ch technology changes, um, uh, di digitalization, for example, are having an effect. Um, they may ha have more of an effect here in, uh, in, in developed countries, but they will also uh, affect uh, African countries as well. And there are a range of other megatrends. And so we want to understand um, how these megatrends are affecting uh, African countries and how it affects the dynamics between growth jobs and, uh, and inequalities. And uh, we're going to do that um, on the basis of uh, presentations by uh, the main uh, institutions. Um, so Mario Pazzini uh, is here. Uh, he is the director of the OEC Development Center. Um, and they have uh, co-authored this with African Union. And um, you will have noticed that, uh, unfortunately, the, the commissioner for uh, economic affairs couldn't be here. Um, and in a minute, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll show a brief message 
um, and he's prepared a speech which you can, after the event, um, uh, um, watch online. We will then uh, discuss uh, the report, and um, so we then go to Rachel Turner, um, who is uh, the Director for Economic Development at the Department for International Development, and uh, so spearheading the work on economic development that is now so important for, uh, for DFID um, and in its offer uh, to support developing countries to reduce poverty. And um, we then also uh, ask Desni to um, uh, to, um, uh, to uh, discuss the report as well. She's got a background uh, in the public pri the private sector as well. Investec is now at a global council. Um, and looking at technology issues in particular, so that will uh, is also uh, something that we can uh, we can discuss. So um, let's start with the discussions. And I think what we first do is um, just have a message briefly from the commissioner who sent uh, uh, his apologies. Um, uh, so Rob, maybe you can show the, his message. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I would have wished to be with you in London for this launch, but I am unfortunately prevented for, from attending by overcommitments here in Addis Ababa. On behalf of His Excellency Moussa Faki Mohamed, Chairperson of African Union Commission, and indeed on my own behalf, I would like to express my thanks to the OECD and all the partners who worked tirelessly with my team in the African Union Commission to ensure the success of this event. Good. So, um, uh, apologies to, to you all that he can't be here, but you can watch his, um, his, his speech uh, online after the, after the, after the event. Um, and um, it's just good that we um, have lots of linkages with, with AU. You've um, uh, written uh, this report jointly. Uh, yesterday we were fortunate that the, the, the AU Commissioner uh, for Trade uh, uh, was here and uh, uh, I will be able perhaps in the discussions to express also some of the ideas that they were uh, discussing as well. Um, so I hope that will do. Um, and um, so we, I think we should now start with the discussion of the report and we're very fortunate that the director of the OEC Development Centre is here. Um, so over to you to be discussing this fantastic book. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be here. In reality, the author of the report is there. I don't have any merit, but just to represent the institution. And therefore, I will try to share with you the history of this report and also some contents, because they take sense, they acquire a sense in this wider perspective. And I will follow, as many times happens, the suggestion of Dirk in uh, the structure of my presentation. Uh, speaking about how megatrends may be significant now to discuss those issues, uh, what has been the history of this report, uh, the policies that comes out, and finally certain consideration concerning how to finance the overall exercise and experience. Now, as for megatrends, uh, if I have to uh, look for theoretical roots, my theoretical roots uh, are mainly summarized by a joke of Albert Hirschman. And it says about two people that are walking and they cross each other and one says to the other, oh, 
It has been 20 years, Paul, but you were small, now you're tall, uh, you were fat, now you are thin. What happened to you? And the other says, sorry, but my name is not Paul. So you have changed so much, even the name. Uh, these jokes summarizes what I think we sometimes economists are incapable to realize because we have some obstacle to the perception of change. And there is a big change. And the world has changed. And the center of gravity of the world has moved. It was in the northern uh, of the Atlantic, in the Azora Island, 40 years ago. And now it's more on the eastern border of Turkey. And we know why, why this happened. Because, for example, you take from 2000 and 2010, more than 83 countries, non-OECD, at a rate of growth more than the double of the OECD average. And you know some of those names, China, Chile, and so on. However, there are 83 <laughs> names. And uh, the consequences have been major. We know that extreme poverty has been reduced, even if it not disappeared. Unfortunately, we have to do additional efforts. We know that the condition in the global labor market have changed. And we know also that the distribution of monetary reserves have moved and now are in the end of non-OECD country in majority, and so on. This has a lot of consequences also for Africa. And we, just to remember some, in 2009, China became the first economic partner in terms of trade of Africa. Obviously, European countries like to say that the sum of the European is more important. But if we take individual country, that's the story. A lot has to deal with foreign direct investment uh, when we observe China and uh, also innovative form of cooperation. Now, what does it mean? Mainly, it means that uh, we have dealt for many years with differentiated tools and I think a strong intelligence against extreme poverty. But this was one of the traps that the country are facing. There are other traps that the country are facing. And if we are not capable to address those traps, we are like somebody that is bicycling and stop pedaling. Obviously, we'll fall down and we'll, uh, we'll reverse, including to, uh, towards forms of extreme poverty that we thought were eliminated. It's not necessary to go far. It's enough to go on the other side of the Atlantic. In Latin America, we have seen these uh, things happening in Brazil, for example, but in many other countries of the region. So if that's the situation, addressing the different bottleneck of development is a kind of permanent effort. And this is probably the most important messages, at least from my point of view, that comes from the SDGs. So, in that context, we started 17 years ago, together with the uh, African Development Bank, to produce every year a report that at that time was called African Economic Outlook. Uh, lately, uh, also UNDP joined that crowd. But uh, the report that we are launching today uh, has changed the configuration. In reality, it's a report of the African Union, and we have helped the African Union, and we would like one day to be nominated the best supporting team, because uh, that's the logic. I mean, we are dealing with a policymaker institution, and as technician, we can support, or as uh, international organization, we can facilitate the policy dialogue with other countries, but that's a report, and we are proud of that, that the African Union consider an African report. Now, 
Where does it come from? What is the history? What have we elaborated over these 17 years to get to this point? I could summarize many data and experiences, but probably the most important one starts six years ago, when, as we were in charge in that joint venture of the past, of the structural theme, we decided that there was something happening under our eyes, and it was the demographic change in Africa. It was one of the global challenges that Dirk was referring to. It's African, but it's global, because the consequences of the spillover can be, and you know better than me, very wide. So we observed that uh, in Africa there was the most important increase in population that we have observed in history, because it was the biggest in volume and the quickest in time. Africa will take half of the time that Europe needed to get to the same level of urbanization, for example. So, confronted with this phenomena, what can we conclude? That is obviously a great news, because uh, at present the rate of dependencies in Africa is more or less one young person for one old. And the old people, and you have one of those in front of you, may be very heavy, <laughs> and the consequence on the youth that have to carry the old is serious. But if you increase the number of young people, things change. And so it's a good opportunity for many reasons. I'm just uh, summarizing why. However, there was a country in North Africa that for 10 years had 5% of growth every year, where there was a, an enrollment in primary school of 100%, where the primary deficit was minus 3%, which was something that at that time the country in the north, I mean Europe, were uncapable to reach, including Germany. And this country, with very good economic performances, looked by the distorting glasses of an economist, was a very good country, but exploded. It was called Tunisia, it went through the Arab Spring. And why it exploded? Because the society was going better, the growth was there, the family had expectation, the rate of fertility decreased, as such was at the level of France at those years, and, and, and as such, all the family was in the hand of the young people that were going in society. And when they went in society, what did they find? Jobs in the informal sector. And we know that everything started also symbolically with one of these young people suiciding. Now, Exactly. This is the dark side of the story. If this is possible, we have absolutely to find a way to avoid it to happen. And again, I repeat, it's not just an African issue, it's a global issue. Therefore, what to do? Obviously, you have many issues that can be addressed, and these issues uh, may concern, uh, in general, the integration of young generation in society. But a crucial aspect in it is the weapon of jobs. How to create jobs to include these young people in society. And here, the day after, we, uh, the year after, we decided to devote the report on one evident comparative advantage in Africa, which is mining and production of non-renewables, so including also energy. There is no doubt that Africa has a lot of it and is underexploited. In Australia, I was discussing with some of friends before, I'm sorry for repeating, but uh, in Australia, uh, every year you have exploration investing more or less $60 per square kilometers. But in Africa, it's five. 
So you may expect that by investing more in exploration, you will find more mining, more opportunity for job, and this will address the issue. Yes, you can create more job, but the fact that the job in this mining sector are mainly high profile in few cases, and very often non-African, and then low profile in other cases, not that many, and however, is a sector we know, for theory, that is a sector with decreasing productivity over time. And therefore, the capacity to employ will be not sustainable for long. Moreover, it is to be limited and not enough to absorb if the 29 million of young people that will enter from now to 2050 every year in society. So it's part of the answer, it's not the answer. We therefore said, oh, but there are the global value chain. They are going through the world and they are producing beautiful things in China and in other aspects and maybe they can be a detonator for development. So why not in Africa? And obviously there is a lot uh, behind this idea. Global value chain, you know, is you take a vertically integrated process and you split up in phases of production, each one discrete. You cannot do it everywhere. Uh, there are sectors in which you can't. But there are light industry, uh, 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 as Steve was recalling to us in China, or other sectors like mechanics, in which you can. And therefore, what is the advantage there? The advantage is that you can start up with a small investment of capital because you specialize only in one phase. You don't need to recreate the overall vertically integrated sector. You don't need, in other terms, the roof of the factory of Ford. You need a small garage and you specialize. If you have the right machine and enough electricity to make it work, you can. So that's a big opportunity for Africa. Huh? A little capital, problem of of uh, financing which are crucial, in this case can be bypassed. However, we went and me we measured how much was Africa producing in terms of intermediary goods in 93. And it was 1.4% of the global production, so nothing. But you say 93 was far, now things have improved. But today is 2.2%, so they have actually improved. But it takes such a long time that it's difficult to think that this will be the answer. Now, let me say some additional point here. Some uh, very wise economists, such as Justin Lin, followed also by uh, Celestin Monga, which is the chief economist of the African Development Bank, <laughs> think that, in fact, the global value chain can work and we can try to attract foreign direct investment, mainly from China, that went at the end of the Lewis uh, model, so exploited as much as possible the poor rural population fluctuating to city for low wages and therefore getting an advantage because you have low wages and profit high and then you can continue to reinvest and you create a big accumulation process. China, which is at the end of this process, may decide to move to Africa. And therefore, you can attract uh, the investment there and replicate what foreign direct investment, mainly from OECD countries, have done in China in the past. However, here there are some issues. First of all, it depends from the sector. If you attract even in free zones investment that are in petrochemical industry, where there are very few unlimited backward and forward linkages to stay with Hirschman, 
Well, the reality is that you will not induce that much around. You is to create cathedral in the desert. But you can choose other sector, and that's very interesting. But here come uh, Steve, and he tells us, ah, I went to China, and I measured a series of light industry, like footwear, clothing, toys, and uh, furniture for house, and so on. And he said, well, I didn't find many firms that have the in in interest to move to Africa. Few have done it. Maybe it will increase in the future. They can, because they can split up their sector and their production, but maybe they will not necessarily come, even with incentives. And why? Because they have other firms that work with them in China, and they need those other firms, because, uh, uh, well, uh, there are new technologies that are arriving, and it seems that some of those technologies will not make that much interesting even a cheap labor in Africa, because the cost of the machine Let's say a machine tool that costs fourteen thousand uh, dollars uh, is very competitive. It doesn't matter which type of job that you can find elsewhere. So it's not sure that they will move necessarily to Africa. And also, finally, even if you increase the speed very strongly, it's not clear if you will solve the problem. So we have found a second potential solution to the problem, but not the solution. Therefore, here comes uh, in another report in which we say, okay, but let's look at the public sector. We can have Keynesian uh, active policy, why not? Uh, and I don't have anything against. However, it's a matter of fact that if you want to create at present the same percentage of public employees in Egypt every year, you have to create every year 180,000 jobs. I don't know if you know Egypt, I can tell you that the public sector in, in, in Egypt can't. You may say, ah, yeah, because in Africa there are no taxes, the people don't have fiscal revenue, the state is not capable. It's, it's true up to a certain point, because sometimes we have to revise this idea of Africa as being incapable to raise taxes. Uh, Tomorrow I am here also for a discussion on Latin America. Latin Americans are very proud of what they do, and they think that Brazil with 30% out of GDP in terms of taxes uh, uh, is capable to raise taxes. Why is Africa? No. Argentina, 29. No. And so on. You take uh, Tunisia as 31% of taxes out of GDP. Uh, South Africa, 29. Uh, Morocco, 26. Chile, which is considered a country very effective and eff efficient, is at 24. So is, it is possible. The point is that the efforts for fiscal reform is so strong that any political economy expert will tell you that it's impossible to realize in short terms. So what to do? And we are working, we presented this situation in this report, and we are looking for the answer. We continue to look for the answer, but this time with the African Union. And what is happening, and I come to my third point, what is happening now is that, Two minutes. yeah, we consider that if we can do things with what I described, a little bit of everything, in any case, we cannot avoid to concentrate on the existing activities in Africa, on the small firms of Africa that are there, on firms that in many cases export, but in other cases, no, because they serve a local 
market because they produce non-tradable. And this economy is, at present, the strong economy of Africa. So the question becomes, is it possible to have leapfrogging to start with those firms that exist that very often are traditional artisans working with universal machine, with very wide tolerance for a local market and not passing the border of a municipality, is possible to have leapfrogging. Here I come to my uh, fourth point and I conclude. It is possible. In many cases, we have observed experience of industrial policies that were not addressing large investment of large firms, state-owned or not. We have experience of industrial policy that address local fabric of firms and economic activities. The only point is that sometimes we have forgotten that we had. Let me give you some example. There is no doubt that to develop this industry, it will be required to have training and skill building. I'm not speaking about alphabetization of education, which is obviously required. But you will need also technical training. How to do it? Well, the Polytechnic of England that existed in the recent past, even if they have disappeared, or the community colleges in the United States where you have both public sector and private sector set, uh, sitting down and deciding together how to provide in the local community technical skills, are an experience on which we can think. Policy of cluster, where the problem is that a small firms working with another small, small firms close and doing the same thing is just uh, inefficient, but a small firm specialize and the other specialize in other things and complementary, they can be like a large firms without the roof, have been tried in Denmark, have been tried in some state in the United States, have been tried in several parts of developing country, and we can sit down and think about it. Last but not least, in many cases, a small firm is small. It cannot do everything inside, so it tends to buy clothes. Clothes because it's difficult for a small entrepreneur to call Los Angeles if you are in Rwanda and ask if they do wheels for your car that you are producing. You go close, you go in the local shop and so on. If the clothes is effective, then you are competitive. If the clothes is not effective, you are not competitive. The clothes, the territory, become a factor of production in a certain sense. How much do we have experience in policy that strengthen the local environment? Not the generic centers that OECD like to say, an environment conducive to growth, when in reality we think only to change national regulation, but not to go in the nitty gritty and see how things work. Is it possible to do it? Yes, we do have experience in those fields. Can we put this experience together? I will end with just one consideration. We are discussing at the end of the story about policies. It doesn't mean that the private sector cannot have, uh, cannot have initiatives or that we cannot use the private sector to intervene. Actually, the opposite. But how do we finance those policies? It's helpful to recall that the first source of funding for policy in Africa remain taxes. The second together with the third, because they are at the same level, are foreign direct investment and remittances. ODA come only late. And finally, there are uh, philanthropy intervention. We need to rethink the system 
not just one aspect of the system, the overall system. How can we use ODA to be a leverage for other activity and for indirect investment that may come using the private sector? We need to think to development bank. For Africa, we were discussing about the development bank of Ethiopia, but in Brazil, Benedes is spending much more than the World Bank in overall Latin America. They exist, they are there. The BRICS Bank is going to be a development bank very active in many BRICS and not only BRICS country. So thinking about financing uh, means that we have a little bit to open our traditional discussion because the ancient architecture probably needs to be revised. Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much, that's very good. Um, so uh, quite a few um, important things in here. Um, so uh, we need to look beneath the surface of growth rates. Um, so there was quite some growth in Tunisia and um, then problems started. So we need to look underneath uh, headline numbers and think about whether that growth is really transformative, whether it's broad-based right. and whether it creates jobs. So that's, that is really an important uh, um, um, message there. Uh, and then secondly, uh, we're in search of, uh, for solutions, and of course this is uh, your, first, your first volume together, but you, do, you will do more, isn't it? And uh, um, in effect, we just had a discussion on, on your next uh, report earlier today, um, but it's also thinking about, it's a dynamic process, you're, you're trying to learn, you're trying to think about where are the, uh, what are the solutions, but you do say that um, there are some challenges out there, uh, and some uh, issues such as tagging onto global value chains, um, are the most partial solutions. They're not, they can't uh, provide all solutions. Um, but you also uh, optimistically uh, finish with a note saying, well, actually, we know how to develop and we know how to uh, cluster firms, we know how to specialize, uh, uh, looking at development banks uh, uh, and the importance of um, perhaps aid in catalyzing uh, different flows. And so there's a positive note out there as well, I think. Um, which... We know, but we don't know that we know. Okay. That's the problem. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Now, I'd, I'd like to go then to, um, to Rachel uh, Turner and just asking her how, how you look at sort of the quality of growth uh, and job creation in, um, uh, in African countries. And also, I suppose there are quite a few connection points, thinking about uh, development banks, CDC, for example, and other, and other uh, areas of how you think uh, you might be able to support efforts of African countries in, in, uh, in creating jobs. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks. I was just looking at, the, uh, at page 217, where there's actually a very neat 10 very specific mm. policy recommendations. And I was thinking I should have organized what I was going to say around them, but I haven't. But it's, uh, I think it's worth, you know, having that. So it's quite an interesting, I think it's helpful to see that so succinctly. So, uh, Dirk, I was just going to say a few things about um, the, where we are in, in, in the UK, uh, including the Department for International Development uh, in relation to this agenda in Africa, and then maybe just say a few things which are kind of, I guess, hanging questions and challenges, and maybe that can help provoke some discussion. Um, I mean, we, and just a little bit of sort of story and history, I guess, in 2017 we launched a new economic development strategy in DFID that was absolutely a response to what African governments were asking us for, uh, and that was for us to really move uh, upstream 
uh, from the livelihoods work towards support for their economic transformation, for their industrial strategies, for their urban connectivity strategies, for their agro-industry, um, for connecting smallholders into domestic food and international food markets, for their work on trade uh, and attracting investment. So we launched a new strategy in 2017 and then uh, later that year, actually in this room, we launched a new strategy for CDC, our own development finance institution, and, uh, and over the summer, we agreed uh, $3.5 of new capital investment into our development finance institution. And uh, the reason being that we uh, absolutely feel that there's a role for what we call patient capital uh, that comes from development finance institutions to help share risk and to attract and mobilize investment behind uh, ambitious economic transformation and industrial strategies. Uh, and so um, uh, CDC launched a new strategy uh, explaining uh, quite clearly how they would start to deploy that capital. Um, this summer, the Prime Minister uh, went to Africa, which was uh, really exciting for us, but uh, I think exciting for the whole of government. And I think um, it's, uh, for those of you who haven't uh, uh, read the speech or didn't hear it at the time, um, it's, I think it's worth, get it out occasionally and look at it, it's a good speech, I think. Um, but particularly, I think, uh, what's really important there, I think, is the clear recognition uh, from the UK and from the Prime Minister that this is a mutual endeavour. And I think in terms of, you know, you spoke about mega trends, but I think what's really changing is the, the language and the ambition to think about uh, Africa's industrialization and economic transformation as a mutual endeavor. There are opportunities uh, to contribute to that, but there are also opportunities for us in the UK to invest in that and benefit from it. And um, in the speech, we were absolutely clear that um, the UK offer for Africa, as well as the support for industrial strategies that I was speaking about, is clearly an investment offer. And that's because here in the UK, we're at the heart of the city, we're at the heart of financial markets. Um, and uh, we really want to be able to attract and deploy uh, the best innovative, relevant, appropriate financing into Africa behind, behind those industrial strategies and behind those new ambitions. And our Secretary of State made a speech uh, on the 9th of October in which she talked more about that, about her ambitions uh, for investment. Uh, she also launched a national conversation uh, to uh, extend that conversation about you know, recognizing that investment comes from savers and extending the conversation about savers' own ambitions for investment and the standards and, uh, and their appetite for, for these markets and their expectations of the investors who invest their savings. So that was a very exciting moment as well, I think, to begin that kind of national conversation, recognizing this mutuality and this connectivity. I think in terms of the challenges, so since, uh, you know, we've been building up a new program of work, we've been responding to African governments uh, uh, and their requests for advice. I was actually in, uh, in, in Ghana last week at a, an investment conference in Ghana, um, very exciting uh, work with the Ghanaians to bring investors uh, behind uh, Ghana's new industrial uh, transformation strategy. 
a lot of interest, a lot of appetite, I think, partly following uh, Ghana's uptick in ratings and their new macro policy. Um, but some of the things that, you know, we're talking about, and it would be good, I guess, to get people's views on, I mean, you know, doing industrial strategy is difficult. So I think that's basically what you're saying here, doing industrial strategy is difficult. What's interesting for us at the moment, of course, is the UK is doing a new industrial strategy. And so, you know, you can't help but, you know, and I think, you know, I think it's just really healthy when you're doing a new industrial strategy yourself. I think you can really also feel how, well, I mean, we've, we've launched our industrial strategy, but I think, you know, I think you can feel how difficult some of these choices are. It's, it's really, you know, industrial strategy is difficult, yeah? Um, uh, and getting the right role for the public sector. And as you say, the discussion about clusters and what sector should be at the backbone of your strategy. But also understanding what your neighbors are doing. You know, how much space is there in Africa for every country to have a textile industry? Yes, healthy competition, yes, connectivity. But, you know, I think those, you know, those issues are quite difficult uh, and how much you can afford to build industries that then kind of then, uh, then lose out to competition. I mean, they're, they're just difficult questions, yeah. And I think um, questions about investment zones, um, uh, public-private sector models. Uh, there's a really interesting growing private sector interest in in private sector profitable uh, industrial zones um, and the architecture. A lot of learning, I think, going on about what works and doesn't work. Uh, and we're really trying to kind of stay very close to that. I think the skills piece, I think if you were to ask us to kind of where we are on the skills piece, it's to say what absolutely still fund fundamentally matters to kind of get energy behind the economic transformation piece is that kids leave secondary school with a good education and, and compensating for that through very expensive skills programming is not necessarily the best way to be sort of focusing effort and there's a big debate about that but I think that's why you would tend to find us focusing more on the secondary mm -hmm. uh, piece than the, the kind of top-up skills piece not to say that there aren't really important things to do I think we would call it sort of readiness for young people to be able to work and mm -hmm. access jobs um, uh, for us, there are, you know, there's a growing uh, recognition of the importance of helping African governments utilize the preferential market access that they have uh, and will have going forward, uh, specifically to the UK. The whole preference utilization piece, the import piece is really important. And I think, you know, I think um, as we leave the EU um, and as we transition the trade agreements, um, we're beginning to understand uh, a lot more finely the key issues in helping businesses utilize the preferences available and what that and what that uh, and what that feels like and then I guess just finally the the other pieces around uh, financing capital markets debt uh, you know as we think about investment we're also very aware that the international architecture is only just beginning to offer local currency financing and uh, and when we're talking about um, investment, we need to think very hard about how we push appropriate local currency products, not least because of the knock-on effects to consumers. And so um, we're beginning to work on a strand of work on um, how we can develop local currency offers, uh, how we can potentially use our own balance sheet, uh, use some of the facilities that are out there 
to begin to help take some of that foreign exchange risk uh, away, you know, and away from consumers. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. so some points from yeah. me. Yeah. Very good. That's, mm. that, that's really, really great. Thank you very much for mm. that. Uh, also for that comment. Um, so, um, a lot of connection points there. So, one is around um, uh, industrialization, so that, that you're really interested in supporting mm. African countries to, to industrialize. Mm. Um, which, which is something that Mario was also looking for and thinking, thinking around. Um, so that's, that's an important um, conversation. Um, and um, that may then help to sort of provide the jobs uh, to, for, and, and increase the quality of growth. There's also um, quite a bit of discussion you have on the financing of, mm -hmm. of, of these, these industrialization strategies from different angles. Um, so um, you mentioned FDI, for example, mm -hmm. so you want to involve mm -hmm. UK firms. Um, also, the UK public. So there's mm. new conversation around uh, thinking about savers mm. and how the the the, mm. the 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 city can really help uh, with this. But also thinking around supporting uh, industrialization through uh, vehicles like CDC or uh, local currency lending. Um, and so that's that's really interesting. Uh, those connection points there. I think uh, you mentioned briefly the word debt. I think that's also something perhaps we should uh, we might also want to focus on because I think debt is also increasing in quite a few uh, few countries. Uh, and if we if, if we are talking about mega trends, then that's one of them. But another mega trend, I um, I, I think we need to talk about as well. And that's why we have uh, Desne uh, talking, uh, hoping to talk, uh, talk about this is around uh, the issue about new technologies. And I think there's the new ways of doing uh, of producing is in the report. But I think we need to, uh, we need to somebody needs to shake us up and to say um, the world's going to change fundamentally. And um, is that true? Is the world changing fundamentally? And uh, fintech and uh, digitalization is going to change all the opportunities that African countries well, have. Well, things change the more they stay the same, as also so the saying goes. But I'd like to say, uh, first of all, thank you tomorrow for, in the, in the round table we had before, we discussed a little bit about financing. And I think Rachel really picked that up uh, really well in terms of, you know, the important work that DFID's been doing with capital markets in Africa. And Theresa May's uh, trip to Africa. One thing that I want to pick up, and especially is the work that uh, financial sector deepening Africa, mm -hmm. which is one of DFID's flagship uh, capital markets projects in Africa, doing a lot of things with with fintech, especially. And I think one of the best things, most exciting things that came out of Theresa May's um, speech and and all of the initiatives that were launched was certainly the innovation partnerships and the fintech partnerships. And I think um, so. I want to talk to what both speakers have said and as well as some of the speaking points that I prepared uh, in relation to the report. So just to recap, the the OECD report, uh, I want to speak to the mega trends specifically um, and how they interrelate and in terms of um, innovation. So the first one was shifting wealth and how emerging markets are, be, are playing an increasingly important role in the global economy. Now, this is important because the UK has, of course, got its development partnerships, but it's also got competition from China, as you mentioned, but also Japan. You know, So a lot of people, this will, this will change strategically, not only the developmental and political partnerships, but also the flow of capital. Um, I think that's, that's an important thing. To, to realize you know that that Africa's role in the global economy is really changing how how these things develop in terms of innovation in terms of capital then the new production revolution so that's really the mega trend that that I'm really speaking to in, in this so we've been talking about industrialization manufacturing and strategies for Africa but of course automation and digitalization 
are going to bring huge challenges. And uh, last year, for example, I facilitated a roundtable of central bankers um, in Basel, and they were very, very concerned about um, you know the threats to jobs from automation. You know, so, of course, uh, one of those the um, points that was made in the roundtable was, you know, for example, Rwanda's got uh, labor as one of its major, you know, uh, economic inputs. But the thing is, then, if you've got that in combination with rising wages, as Stephen mentioned, along with automation, you know, it, it, is there a big risk that we need to to be talking about in terms of the scaling up and, and so on. So some very sophisticated things are happening, but we need to realize we're talking from a low base, for example. With fintech especially, you know, people say, you know, we're going to bring insert tech, but if you only have 1% penetration in of, of um, insurance in Uganda, what are you scaling up from when there are fundamental capital market problems that need to be solved? Of course, you can leapfrog. But I think um, I was also struck by the, the very important work that the ODI has been doing in terms of the constraining skills capacity issues, you know, that, 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 that you know, make this innovation story patchy and difficult. Then, of course, you've got this big demographic dividend, which is one of the, um, you know, the mega trends that is identified. So you've got these young populations very interested in tech. And I think there there's a lot of promise in terms of innovation. But then do you have the education, you know, inputs that, you know, Africa's really lagging behind on its STEM metrics and mathematics and, uh, you know, and, and science in terms of, of teaching are these things that we need to invest in as well. So, and then also urbanization and you talk about clustering. So urbanization, for example, if you look at why London is such a, a successful exporter of capital markets and fintech expertise, is because in urban centers, ideas are rapidly exchanged. And I think, you know, accelerators, I think some of the things that, um, you know, the UK government is com contemplating, especially in Nigeria um, and Kenya. And then finally, climate change and, and investing into clean technologies. I think one thing that we really need to, you know, we didn't speak so much about climate change as well. And the thing is, Africa's got probably the lowest emissions but will be affected the most by, by climate change. And how can innovation and, and, and you know, really creative funding models also support our renewables and clean technologies? Now, I'm going to talk about these mega trends and how I see some really um, interesting capital models. So of course, you know, there are some you know, fundamental capital market problems. But what I see happening that's really exciting with fintech and private equity and venture capital, which is where you know, the people are really making the bet on fintech, it's coming from, from your VCs and your investment banks. And, uh, and I think this is where you know, there, there could be some fresh thinking around policy responses, because these kinds of new, sophisticated um, you know, forms of capital, uh, you know, I think you're seeing that Africa's not only just becoming um, a norms taker in terms of innovation, it's becoming a norms maker. And I was really delighted that Rachel mentioned that the UK government is beginning to take on board criticism that it's had about the way you talk about your engagement with Africa as an equal partner. And I think that is one thing that is really key in making these innovation partnerships work. If we look, of course, digital currency was invented in Africa with M-Pesa through um, DFID, and, I, and I'll talk about that example a bit more. For example, in cryptocurrency, which is an ex like a completely new asset class on the cutting edge of markets, um, people are launching ICOs, uh, uh, initial coin offerings, in order to hack developmental problems. So you have Vitaly Buterin, who's one of the founders of Ethereum, is doing things like dropping, doing airdrops of crypto to fiat to refugees uh, of universal basic income. You know, so where there are ineptocracies in the government structures, tech is really, uh, you know, I think doing some very in interesting things in terms of solving, uh, new, you know, developmental problems in new and exciting ways. So you could sit, you know, in your bedroom and 
Chelsea and you could raise an ICO to, you know, do a, a train in, in Senegal if you really wanted to. So let's talk about some of these examples. So M-Pesa, for example, started with a one million uh, pound um, co-funded with between Diffid and Vodafone. So two million pounds launched in 2007, 10 years later, M-Pesa like, has half of Kenya's GDP playing, throwing through those platforms, goes to 20 million users. Another success story seeded in the UK at level 39 at the fintech accelerator is Azimo, which is a fintech uh, that was launched in Poland but based in London now. Azimo, from 2012 to 2018, has $600 billion passing through its platform annually. That is a staggering, we talked about remittances, so through mobile, making these things scalable and handheld. I mean, this is, the thing is, it's patchy and there are problems, but the amount of capital is really beginning to um, attract the attention um, of investors. And if, if we just talk about some of the private equity commitments that have been made, Goldman Sachs invent, invested $52 million into Jumo, a South African fintech, just this September. Azimo itself attracted $20 million from Rakuten, which is a Japanese fintech. And, and, and like you're saying, um, Rachel, this also creates jobs for UK people because Asimo provides uh, jobs for people based in their London office as well as providing, you know, um, jobs for uh, people on the ground. But it's um, so I think this is really, really exciting. You know, the sharing of regulatory diplomacy, the sharing of capital market expertise, technological expertise. You know, you look at um, Kenya as a great example of, uh, you know, things like Ushaidi. Um, that, which is uh, led by um, Akuri, uh, uh, I forgot her name, I know her name's Akuri, but that technology was used, it's a, a, a global positioning um, whistleblowing app that you can download, and that was used in the American election, for example, for people to audit what was going on on the ground. So I think there are some genuinely, genuinely exciting opportunities. I mean, I constrain that is, of course, with the challenges and, you know, all the things I mentioned, like education. But there are, the world is beginning to take notice. And I think the thing is, there's a leapfrogging potential where we can take innovation, use financing as well, and, and create absolutely massive opportunities. But it's about the great work that Diffid does, for example, is finding those unicorns. So if you think Goldman Sachs has invested 52 million, that's 52 impesas. You know, so I just kind of think we need to think about it in slightly different terms. Good. Thank you. So a very uplifting comment there as well. So, I mean, if we take this together, um, we need to make sure that we focus on the quality of growth, the right type of growth. It's really important. Think about jobs. Um, and in that context, um, industrialization. Um, has been mentioned, so thinking about industrialization uh, it, it, it is, is an important uh, part of, um, of, of the solution. Um, and the question then, we, we discussed a bit of how to, how to help this, how to support this. It's a process. Um, the, um, the ambassador for, of, for, from Morocco in the, in the early session mentioned that there's no quick fix uh, to this, uh, this issue, it's, uh, it needs focus, needs a lot of attention, a lot of hard work, doing, a, doing a, uh, not just one, two years, but a whole well, decades of, of, of work. Um, and we talked a bit about financing it, so the different ways of, of financing this. Um, but thirdly, so one, quality of growth, secondly, it's industrialization, but thirdly, innovation. I've heard that a lot, so when you think about innovation, 
And, uh, and so, um, yes, industrialization is important, uh, but we also need to think about the, the future and think about these mega trends. And so Desna helped us with, with, as you mentioned, climate change and, and fintech and just the, the solution to this, um, uh, to making, to seize the opportunities here is innovation. Uh, and, is, uh, and so how, how can we support that? It's going to be quite an important, um, an important uh, piece of the puzzle uh, to think about uh, sort of Africa's development uh, dynamics. Um, and getting jobs, uh, uh, supporting growth, and uh, reducing poverty and inequality. Right, so lots of issues to be, uh, we can discuss. And so uh, I'd now like to sort of open, uh, open up to uh, members of the audience and, um, and uh, happy for you so to take a couple of points and questions. And um, so maybe start on the left first. Um, Karishma, maybe you could say who you, who you are and then make a point or um, ask some yeah. questions. Um, hi. Well, let's start. Yeah. Um, I'm Karshma Banga from the Overseas Development Institute. Um, so I had a quick question for uh, Mario and perhaps also a little comment on the job creation angle. So um, so it's, I think, OECD's research in 2016 which showed that uh, the, the productivity slowdown that we've been witnessing is not such uh, not as much as a slowdown in productivity growth, but actually um, the, the top 5% of OECD firms are actually rising in productivity. So, uh, But it's also been accompanied by a widening productivity gap between the, so to say, superstar firms and the laggard firms. And um, this is the result of the divergence of technology and the uh, firm's capacity to innovate, which also links back to what, what Dirk mentioned. So I just wanted to ask, so, um, you know, given the context of growing digitalization and how, how, how important technology and innovation is, um, how does Africa ensure that the digital policies that are, are in place are able to actually facilitate tech transfer uh, from developed economies through trade and through um, FDI? Um, and one quick uh, point on the job creation thing. Um, so yeah, we have done a lot of work on the different pathways through which digitalization can affect job creation. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of growing concerns about, about automation and, but there are also important channels through which new jobs can be created um, in terms of the sectors that are actually producing these machineries or the services sectors that are providing repair and maintenance, or even if the productivity effect is there. So that can also lead to the creation of jobs through the value chain. So I think to me, uh, the more serious question is that if these jobs are going to be, is, is the changing landscape of jobs or employment. So it will create a lot more demand on the skilled workers. And workers will increasingly need you know, job neutral skills like uh, soft skills, management, um, um, you know, communication, these sort of things, along with digital skills, which can be both uh, job neutral, like data analysis, also also job specific, like computer programming. So I think financing of these sort of skills and in a very targeted way is perhaps uh, the key. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that's very helpful. Um, what you um, uh, didn't mention, but what I will mention now is that uh, that you were the author of a report on digitalization and the future of manufacturing in Africa, which is part of the Supporting Economic Transformation Program that I'm directing, which is funded by, by, uh, by uh, DFID, and um, which is really thinking about this issue around uh, what are the opportunities, but what are the challenges out there. So there's really about sort of question about the future of skills here um, that, that are needed. Um, does anybody else want to, uh, uh, to ask questions on this? Otherwise, I'll just go straight to, um, to Mario and... Uh... Yep, lady here. Maybe you could do the uh, microphone. Sorry, sorry. Uh, 
my point is about whether... So what you've talked about is a lot of bilateral sort of interest and relationships in individual countries. I wondered about how useful the regional entities are in Africa as a kind of vehicle for growth, or whether... I mean, are they relevant, irrelevant? Not quite sure. Thank you. Very good. And the uh, lady here on the right. Hi, I'm Ellie Groves. I work for an organisation called OMFIF, and we've just launched our second Africa markets, uh, Africa Financial Markets Index, and we look at key themes uh, and um, pillars across various uh, African countries. And one of those is regulation. And I think one of the key things is if there's going to be a advancement in tech, and if we see fintech really developing and um, improving financial markets, they're there's uh, a case to be made for regulation alignment, not just through the countries in Africa, but also through the UK and the US, and I'm just and you know and, and Europe as well. And I'm wondering what what kind of the take on is that, and whether those are the conversations that are happening with the policymakers. Yeah. Okay. So these are sort of two additional very important questions. So one is about um, the, the importance of regional uh, bodies in in, in supporting. Um, transformation in supporting uh, the growth job job dynamics, uh, which is really import, important to uh, to look at, and particularly in the context of the African free free trade free trade area now, the, with AU the AU strategy 2063 strategy. Um, so how can they can they help? Um, and the other question about regulation, which is also relates a bit to the digital piece, I think as well, um, which is really important because um, the um, uh, FinTech uh, digitalization is mo moving very fast. And if some countries, African countries, don't take part in this and are not developing the, their, their policies on, on data protection or uh, and other issues, then perhaps they will they'll be left behind and they might not get all the FinTech investment that, 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 that might be needed, perhaps. So these, these are uh, three, um, three questions um, that, uh, that, that were, uh, were asked. So maybe we just go to Mario first. And yeah. Thank you very much. I would like to try to uh, represent the present debate in a very schematized way. I'm sorry, I'm not that much subtle nor diplomatic. But at present, we have to deal with the initiative of the Compact in the G20 for Africa, which is mainly led by Germany, and whose idea is we need to do what you call, with a beautiful word, regulatory diplomacy. In other terms, we need to set or disseminate standards concerning regulation at the national level in Africa by means of an initiative that will promise private sector investment if the regulation will be in place. That's if I brutalize a little bit the idea, but more or less that's the idea. It seems to me that despite there are very important issue of regulation and you have already addressed in part and you are best better position than I am to address those, it seems to me that from our discussion comes out a kind of different dimension, which is not antagonistic. Maybe you can try to apply regulation in that way. Maybe China is using similar tools and sometimes even more successfully. But uh, this could be a, a way. We are saying we also need active policies. Uh, we are uh, speaking about the need of uh, uh, financial intervention from the feed, from the, co the cooperation that is in place. And they need to address issues with active movement. I think that this is the 
uh, innovative part of what we are discussing here. We cannot be confined only on this idea that by means of negotiation we can push the governance of country in Africa. We are saying even to do that, you need specific active policy. What is the idea of free zones, for example, at the end of the story? Yeah, we hear uh, this idea from Justin Lin or from uh, Celestan Monga, let's create uh, free zones like in Ethiopia. It's not a new idea. What Japan have done with free zones in the past? Japan has tried to change the national regulation that was impossible to change by creating certain areas in which you adjusted the rules and if there there was economic success, then you can try to expand. It's a different, completely different logic and I would call it an active logic and an active policies. Now, the same is what we are proposing here, is not necessarily free zones, it's intervention in the economic structure, the way in which the Africa economy functions. And here I come to the question of productivity. I have to confess that I am a little bit critical within the OECD on the data on productivity that you refer to correctly. The result of certain analysis push forward the idea that we have very innovative large, even very large firms, and the rest are called zombies. It's very interesting because if you go back in economic analysis, you find that type of explanation uh, at least 200 years ago, and it, it reappears all the time. Alfred Marshall had the idea that we have a representative firms, and if you don't have that size, you are inefficient. But he was assuming that all firms, small and large, were doing the old product and not just par part of the product. Uh, during uh, uh, the 20s, we offered to populist movement that then produced Nazism and fascism the small firms because we thought that with concentration they would have disappeared. So why should we spend time and policy with small firms? Unfortunately, the economic and political consequences were very serious. Today, when we look not only in developing countries or Africa, but also in the OECD country about small firms, we see that de facto, the large part of our economy is done by those firms. So why those data? I think that in part there is a, technology, a, a methodological problem. We measure productivity by value added on people. Inside that value added, there is also the market power. It is obvious that large firms have much more market power than small firms. Are we discussing efficiency here? No, we are discussing inefficiencies of the structure of markets. So I would not necessarily derive from that the idea that small firms uh, have low productivity. Secondly, where do we measure the productivity? At the level of the firm or at the level of the microeconomic system? A small firm, which is a subcontractor of uh, 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 Rolls-Royce, uh, may have a kind of lower productivity because Rolls-Royce has decided to keep the most important phases inside the factory and to subcontract the more lower productivity activities. But both are indispensable. It would be as to say that I want to listen music and I just buy a CD player, but not the boxes. I need both. As such, I would not necessarily see the small firms as condemned by their size, which means economy of scale, at the end of the story, to have a lower productivity. 
And by the way, in Africa, with all we have seen with informatics, particularly in service sector, there is the only case strong that we have seen of leapfrogging. And these were small firms, consumer, that were using the telephone and so on. So I wouldn't export what I think is an incomplete analysis that we are doing on OECD countries, small firms, to Africa. But apart from that, we are not in open, transparent, efficient market where if you have a low profit, you will disappear. We are in, say, in cases in which what you have to deal with is either a small, even not that much efficient firms, or unemployment. The first is already two times more productive because it's the only option you have at hand. So I definitely would say we can uh, do policies, help policies for these small firms to help them to acquire productivity. I don't know if leapfrogging will be possible, but for sure we can guarantee more employment thanks to that policies. The only point is that they cannot be the same policies that we apply for large firms. And just on the importance of regions? <laughs> the importance of region is crucial because in this house, maybe you are used to speak about East Africa and many countries from that region. But in particular, if you look West Africa, and, uh, and Nigeria is the biggest example that we have here, but there are other countries that are much smaller there. The economic unit is not the country. The economic uh, osmosis of the borders is enormous. So your real unit of analysis, if you want to do uh, business is not necessarily a country, it's much more, it's a region. In particular, a region is crucial when you think about policies. If you do policies only at the national level, your capacity of fire will be extremely reduced. That's why, despite all the difficulties, uh, I think that we have to work a lot on region. And by the way, in this report, we have chapter on regions. In the past, we used to have country notes. I don't know if they were very helpful. Uh, they were very detailed. They didn't bring new knowledge. I think that now the frontier for our analysis, in many cases, is there. Not because the other is not helpful, but it's already existing. And you're totally right. We have to focus on region. Okay, thank you. Rachel, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I think on regions, I, I mean, I think we know uh, from our work in East Africa particularly, there are, there are a lot of key issues that have been sorted regionally that have been important for creating the environment for growth. And I think of things like the interoperability between mobile phone operators, interoperability between mobile money, I think the just the payment system, yeah, getting the actual payment system to operate uh, as well as the kind of fundamental architecture and the cross-border architecture. <laughs> so I think to what extent the regional institutions have enabled that, or to what extent it's just been collective action by countries who've decided to get their act together, I think is, I think that's the interesting, I think that's what you're asking. And I think, uh, I do think in East Africa the EAC has been quite facilitatory and has spotted uh, the need to bring people together, but equally bringing central banks together in the region has been important, bringing just the banks and so you've got, you know, the banking sector anyway, sort of operating regionally. So I think it's a, it's a difficult call, I think, to argue how far the institutions... And the 
I guess I guess I know East Africa. I guess I know East Africa a bit better in Africa. I think the. Um, so I guess that's that. That's my sort of experience. But I think, to what extent, it's the institution that's going to deliver the answer. I think is it would be good to hear what others yeah. think about that. I think. I mean, I think just on the regular. I mean, I I like um, Desna's uh, use of regulatory diplomacy. I mean, I think just to specifically pick up your point, and Desna was referring to this. One thing we did agree. Uh, during the Prime Minister's visit was a partnership with the Financial Conduct Authority and we particularly, uh, and I think you were referring to this, to begin to help countries with regulatory sandboxes for fintech, uh, so really beginning to help them, but to create that very thick partnership between our regulators and uh, we also announced at the Commonwealth Summit a new partnership between the, the Bank of England and central banks as well, which partly goes to the regulatory issues. So. So I do think that regulatory partnership space is really thickening uh, and trying to stay relevant, but I think Dejeuner explained that much better than I can. <laughs> um, I just want to make two quick points on regional and on skills, and I'll get into regulation. So I agree with you, Karishma, um, that there's the opportunity to open up for new kinds of jobs um, with, and, and certainly, you know, worldwide that will be the case, that new jobs will be created. But the nature of those jobs will be increasingly intellectualized, as you say, and again, it comes down to skills and education and how, how, how we, we plan for that, you know, um, across the continent. And then uh, regionally, um, I can speak to financial markets and SADC, which is the one that I know the best, being from South Africa myself. Um, so, I mean, I think SADC's done some really great things, for example, on conservation partnerships, you know, uh, especially managing, you know, the, the Kruger, the Kruger Park and the area around um, Botswana, Zimbabwe, um, shared resources there. And then there's the MEFMI um, financial markets uh, capacity building, which is all the African countries, sub-Saharan, ex-South Africa. You know, cause, and I think the thing is, you'll see what happens in Africa is very much what happens in Europe. In Europe, you've got member states where you have, you know, the UK's got deep capital markets and Germany's got deep capital markets, but then you've maybe got, uh, you know, Estonia and, you know, sort of uh, other countries. So I think, you know, that that's the thing. It's, uh, yes, pulling together in the same direction, but, you know, I think that uh, MEFMI, for example, which is based in Zimbabwe and works with finance ministers and central bank governors to share capacity, um, acknowledging that they may not have the capital market depth or expertise that South Africa has and, and you know, facilitating forums and, and so on, which, which comes to the regulatory point. So I'm going to start first at the global level um, in terms of fintech, and I think the thing is, Advances in fintech are happening so, I mean, I've, I, I do this actually for a living. I cover financial global, like, regulations. That's what I do at Global Council. Literally doing a trawl every single week um, of every single, you know, all the regions that I cover, um, Asia-Pac and EMEA, looking at announcements uh, from key regulatory authorities and, and looking at um, how they are responding to, um, to key things. So, for example... Fintech and, and uh, cryptocurrencies especially is a big issue on, on the global regulatory agenda at the moment. The thing is that the nature of these um, digital is cross-border. So that's the first thing that I want to say. So the, the first problem is harmonizing. So this is like a global, and one of the things the FCA has done is this global financial innovation network, which and, 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 and this issue of money laundering and financial crimes. So I think the problem is that 
that there's a harmonization issue at a global level. I, I don't think, I mean, I think the thing is you can't use Africa as an exception when it comes to fintech and cryptocurrencies because at the global level, regulators are still racing to understand what these things are. And then you have regulatory contradictions at the European level, for example. On the one hand, you're pushing for open banking. On the other hand, you have GDPR. How do you, um, you know, reconcile those kinds of things. On the one hand, you want data protection. On the other hand, you know, uh, you want uh, tax havens to open up their data. So I think there are a lot of contradictions at the sophisticated uh, capital market level as well. Then coming to Africa, then just going a step down, even in the traditional financial markets, I think it's, uh, you know, so this is kind of my, the, you know, for my sins, a, a challenge that I have to, so I cover, um, most of sub-Saharan Africa and then key markets. Now, even in really good markets like Kenya and Nigeria, with the deeper, um, deeper uh, financial systems, you'll find that a regulator will do something like they won't put a date on something. Or it's just reported in the media. So you have no idea if a law is effective or what the status of play. And I think little things like that, and I know there are many initiatives across the continent, law firms are working with capacity and so on, but I think that at the, the the problem is the regulatory problem. I take I take your point. Um, I've often had to be on the phone to Kampala, being like, "Please, can you ask the minister when when did this you know notice come out, or is 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 this going to be solved?" You know, um, trying not to sound like I'm asking on behalf of a big UK investor, you know. But I think this this is a message that really needs to go. Um, you know, the work that you do at Diffid um, and with the FCA and and combining expertise certainly. If you want to match buyers of African products and services to sellers um, on the continent, information, you know, markets are made of information. So it's like, how can you match buyers and sellers if they don't know, you know, what they have? And I think efficient capital markets is really, really key. So I think, you know, getting that, uh, you know, regulatory reporting up to an international standard is absolutely critical. Very good. So, uh, I mean, just to, to add also to this, um, uh, particularly on the importance of regions and having the benefit, uh, having had the benefit of being in the conversation yesterday with the, uh, the, the, the EU Commissioner for Trade and, uh, and Industry, um, there, um, there's quite a bit of dynamics be behind um, the EU, for example, and the, and the, the, the Africa free trade, uh, content free trade area. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of um, vision there. And uh, but we also realise that it's going to be a, it's it's a it's a long road and it might be um, uh, there will be bumps uh, along the road, uh, but there were uh, I think except for five countries all countries have have signed it and already seven countries have ratified uh, ratified uh, the CFTA and uh, and, uh, and perhaps more will will follow uh, uh, this year so there there is some some dynamic, dynamism there and the ambassador from from Morocco. Uh, uh, was mentioning um, that, or the, the Ethiopia was mentioning that Morocco was investing in, in Ethiopia, and the investor of Morocco is actually also one of the demanders to think about. Well, we'd like uh, more provision on investment, for example, in the in the CFTA. So not only um, uh, regional uh, tariff issues or NTBs, uh, think about NTBs, but also um, uh, uh, provisions on investment, for example. So there's there are, there are now uh, sort of demanders out there and thinking that actually. Uh, the regional level, something can happen. Of course, in the past, perhaps some of the regions haven't been always that that uh, that help that been helpful. But uh, but in the East Africa community, um, and what I know is also the DFIT support program for uh, 
the trade, trademark East Africa, for example, is also integrating countries alongside um, area, uh, alongside developments at the, at the EAC, uh, East Africa community. So those two things go hand in hand. Trade, trade, um, uh, trade, regional trade provisions and um, and capacity building uh, and, and connecting countries through uh, through building roads, bonds um, border posts, uh, and uh, harmonisation uh, of uh, of regulatory. Frameworks. That's really important, and I suppose one one final issue there also on the the importance of standards and regulatory di diplomacy. Um, that's also come up um, last Friday here at a roundtable that we had with the different permanent secretary, for example, um, where where there were a range of uh, of, uh, of tech startups who operate in African countries. They really were looking for the public sector to to set standards uh, and to show what's working and sort of get some information about what's working, what's not working, and, uh, and there was a lot of demand for that. Right, we have uh, um, uh, time now for some more questions. Um, so who'd like to start? Over there. Hello. Um, my name is Motta Moreo. I work for the Charities Aid Foundation and the international team, um, supporting our network of global officers. Um, I'm also a researcher for PanAfrica, which is an online video platform which looks to tell African narratives. And I'm a co-founder of Diasporate Development, which seeks to create a network for black professionals working in development and charity. So my question is, what role do you see for diaspora communities with regards to the growth, like Africa's economic growth? Um, it's just not one of the things I've heard today. So I don't know if the report covers it. And if not, if you could just share some of your personal views. Um, Dario Rubin from BSI, which is the British Standards Institution, incidentally. Um, but my question is not about standards, and it sort of is to all of you, really, and it draws upon this idea of innovation. And what I wonder is, by this leapfrogging, if it does happen, do you feel there is a danger that we might actually exacerbate inequality that we see all across Africa? And I mean, on the national level, but also on the continental level. I've just come back from Uganda, last Friday, still a bit jet-lagged, you know, and amazing that you see mobile payment booths everywhere, right? You don't see that in the UK. It's pretty impressive. Uh, but at the same time, you have about 10% of population actually having access to electricity. So how do you reconcile that? How, how, how do you address that? Thank you. Okay. Uh, James McGregor. Um, I'm, a, I'm a fellow at the um, Centre for Social Innovation at Surrey, but also I was an ODI fellow once, so um, feels like coming home. Uh, so I, I have a bottom-up question. Um, around the world, it's very much related to technology, we see a lot of optimism around what technology is doing in the informal sector. So we're seeing sort of trade, payments, uh, the, the, the point just made here, uh, but also education and a range of other things. Um, so my question to the panel is, how do we, we, we see this optimism in the informal sector. How do we fold that in? How do we accelerate that? How do we support that in, in this kind of work as economists into our notion of economic growth, but ultimately you know, bringing that bottom-up flavor to this? And I think the gentleman here. One more question here, the gentleman over there. One more question. 
Oh, thank you very much. Mine is more for, uh, for the Christmas message. Yeah, I think just between uh, last week and today, there's been lots of conferences on Africa. I think the FT Africa Forum, today, yesterday and today, the Ghana government brought the whole uh, trade and industry team to come and leverage finances. And with what your presence in Ghana last week, so today, Ian, the High Commissioner, was with the Ghana High Commissioner, exactly. So, I mean, my point is, the conversation is changing. So, I work for a risk management firm that's solely focused in Sub-Saharan Africa. So, we were in Ivory Coast and Ghana the past three months. And I mean, a client wanted to understand risk potential within the agro space. Um, what the UK is doing now, I think, it's sort of having that horizontal conversation with Ghana. I think it's changing the rhetoric in a way. Because what governments, the Ghana government's policy now is Ghana beyond aid. So they want the private sector to come in and support. So I think from a global perspective, the notion, I guess for most people on the ground is that the government has to do this. That narrative has to change. That the government just has to set a platform for the private sector to be able to operate. So if you want to set up a business, all you need to go is go online without having to go to a fiscal address and having people tossing you up and about. And I think DFID is doing a good work in some of these areas. Just to land lastly on the fintech space, there's a, a deeper education that, that needs to be done. Because some of the central uh, governors, bank governors, are coming around the idea of even the cryptos. So in Ghana, for example, I think they're using blockchain now for land administration. So you can sit in Washington, D.C. You don't have to be in Accra to look at uh, where, uh, how the lands are mapped. So uh, they come around the idea. So as for the Securities and Exchange Commissions to look at ways that they can support the central governors to either write in laws or one way or the other how to regulate the markets because undoubtedly now folks are not going to the banks. So the banks are having to reduce their tellers, which in a way is reducing uh, employment in some way. And this is the future. So there's got to be way that, I mean, there's more conversation to be had about this, but it is positive. So my father, Christmas message is yes, things are changing. And we all have to uh, rope ourselves into that value chain and see how best we can you know, move uh, the agenda for the development of the continent forward. Because if it doesn't work there, then we'll see what's happening in uh, the likes of uh, Libya and Morocco. Some of these guys, you know, wanted to jump ship because they want a better life. So thank you very much, anyway. Yeah, thank you. Good. So changing conversations, that's, uh, that's really important. Um, so we have about um, seven minutes for, um, for final, uh, final uh, comments from, from the panel. Um, perhaps, um, yeah, shall I st start with, uh, with Mario? So, in telegraphic form, yes, we have been studying in the OECD for 40 years migration. But what was all about? The impact of migration in OECD country. We have very limited work in general about the impact of migration in the country of origin. And moreover, the impact of migration between the country of the south and other country of the south. We are working on it. And I can't agree more with what you said. Yes, diaspora is fundamental. First of all, because as I mentioned before, uh, the second source of financing for Africa are remittances. 
And this means that Africans are financing the development of Africa in many cases. Secondly, because of knowledge. I come from a country that up to 72 had more emigrants than immigrants. We have forgotten it, unfortunately. But how much uh, the industrial development came from experiences of people that were learning by doing things in other countries and came back and became entrepreneurs. I think in many cases in the mechanic industry, this was the history. So definitely, that's fundamental. I like also the fact that you speak from a charity, because I think that another aspect that we have not mentioned up to now is how is changing the world of charities and philanthropy in general in Africa. And I would say, just in one expression, is moving towards venture philanthropism. It's no more uh, uh, ATM machine where we come with the right card and we get money and we do what maybe we have promised to do. Uh, now, the philanthropists sit down with us in doing projects, or with Africans, in doing projects together. And that's great because it's another way to put together different forms of knowledge in doing development. As for disparities, I definitely think that they will increase. We have seen it all the time. In the Lewis model, it's very clear, no? You have uh, investment that will, and profit that will increase, and wages not. And that's one of the source of initial accumulation. The point is that they become unsupportable. And therefore, they produce tension as the one that I described at the beginning in Tunisia. So we cannot anymore consider a model in which we will have growth. Then at a certain point, we will have the spillover effect. And we will calm the people that will be overeating. No, we need to put in place, it's much more difficult, at the same time, social policies now, because this becomes a clear bottleneck of development if we don't. And we see, not only in Africa, but unfortunately also in Brazil and in other places, what is happening. Uh, therefore, I think it's fundamental, because there are two figures. There are the middle classes that remain vulnerable, they can fall down if they don't have pension, because they work in the informal sector, and as a consequence, when they retire, they don't have a pension, or because somebody gets sick in family and they fall down, or because they don't have a car, and the firms close and open in 20 kilometers, and they cannot go there. And then we have the extreme poor that are sick and tired, it's like when you are in traffic. You see the other line moving, you, you are happy, you say, it will happen to me too. After 15 minutes, they don't move, you start getting crazy. That's exactly the situation that we tend to create. I don't see any other solution. We need social policy. And for that, we desperately need fiscal reform. That's why I was insisting on this point. As for the informal sector, it's very difficult to make a difference between the formal and the informal when informal is normal. In many countries, that's the case. So I think that, to go back to what we said about productivity and so on, we have to think about specific policies for cluster at local level that will increase the competitiveness of firms using new technology, and I think that it can be done. Let me just make an example. The introduction of numerically controlled machine. I was uh, doing industrial policy in a region in Italy at the time, and I remember the firms were extremely competitive, very good. They knew everything about trigonometry, nothing about informatics. For an economist, means that you have to help them because they are efficient on the market. But you have to introduce a new element in their genetic endowment, which is informatics. Now we are confronting very similar problem. We need to intervene in that respect also for the informal economy.
And then just one word and I will conclude the platform between different forms of knowledge. We have in the Development Center a, a platform that is called MNET. There are 33 multinational firms that meet four times a year with us uh, in Paris three times and one in Beijing. And usually they discuss among themselves, very often banks at the time, should we invest in the emerging country or not? Obviously they don't ask any more that question because it's pretty obvious. But now we have firms that are like Telefonica or uh, Eni or uh, Total, Shell. And it's very interesting. What do they want? They want that we organize meeting with the governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria, with the Minister of Finance of Morocco and so on. And you ask why? Because the president of Total takes the phone and speaks with Mr. Robasanjo at, at a certain time, but now he can speak with the president, uh, president of Nigeria or the president of Mar or the, the king of Morocco. So why? Because they think that this multilateral dimension adds something new. When the firms are dealing with policymakers in a around the table, closed door, to have a frank discussion, this opens new space that they don't have. So that's a, a practical answer to your question. I think what you are suggesting is very important and more and more crucial. Thank you. Rachel. Yeah, I think we're nearly out of time. I suppose the one thing I would just uh, say pick up from that is this point about this sort of definition of the informal sector. You spoke about a lot of optimism in the informal sector. I mean, I guess, you know, in this country we'll call it the gig economy, and I guess the issue is, is that the right descriptor? This sort of sense of informal somehow being something that we're trying to move away from, or are we actually in a new world where we're using and I think you know if you go to Kenya people are tending to use the word the gig economy I think the Taylor report here attracted a huge amount of interest in Africa I think the programs we have with the tax authorities throughout Africa are very interested in the Taylor report and how you begin to think about taxing uh, the informal sector appropriately without stymieing that optimism so I guess I, it's hard yeah it's really hard. I think it's it needs to be on all our uh, on all our radars as it is here. Is what I would say. It's the partnership piece that I think matters. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thirty seconds to make a couple of points, I guess. So I just pick up on your point about central bankers um, during UK FinTech Week. I, I was fortunate to work with FSD Africa. They actually did a really big global conference where they invited central bank governors from Africa to share their knowledge and also to learn and explore about fintech here. And I mean, I think you really shouldn't underestimate how good the central bank governors themselves are. I mean, uh, Ndungu Njigana, he was really central to the invention of M-Pesa, and I was fortunate to hear him speak about how they work together with tech firms, with DFID, in order to make that happen. So just on that point. And then just inequality and digital. I just uh, think we, we speak a lot about the kind of economics um, of it, but there's also uh, the gender, gender inequalities of STEM that really need to be addressed. And I think we need to get behind initiatives like Girls Who Code, because I think, you know, as we see these kind of like tech bros of Amazon and so on, that's not the kind of world that I would like to live in where women get more and more disenfranchised with tech. Thank you. Um, so that, uh, that brings us to the end. Um, 
So I suppose if I conclude, then I probably would like to paraphrase you, all, uh, saying, well, th these are changing conversations and uh, um, brought about by, uh, by your report, OECD Development Centre and AU report, think about Africa's development dynamics. Uh, and um, uh, so that, that's been really helpful, but it's changing conversations. We need to, yes, still think about the quality of growth. We do need to think about industrialization. But there's also a range of there are a range of megatrends that we need to uh, keep continuing to to monitor, to think about, to analyze. And as we were talking today, um, uh, particularly around fintech and new technology, this offers opportunities, and lots is already ongoing. Um, but it also uh, there are also challenges out there. For example, how uh, linked to the informal sector, linked to um, to inequality issues that we need to keep on uh, looking at. And so, uh, really important to uh, to be thinking about those those different. Uh, uh, ideas with industrialization, but also the new new uh, conversations around uh, around tech, and I think that's really exciting. So thank you very much, uh, Mario, and thank you very much, Rachel and Desne, for uh, for your comments. And uh, I would also urge you to listen to um, and watch the speech by the EU Commissioner uh, Victor Harrison, who who is, should be online already, or will be, might be online um, um, uh, in the coming day or two. So thank you very much for coming to ODI, and hope to see you again soon. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.